0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let us turn to the book of 1 John this morning. 1 John, chapter 3, here in just a moment. Uh, if you're not familiar with the way Bible is laid out, it's perfectly okay. Those Bibles on the pew in front of you will uh, work just fine, and it's almost toward the very end of your Bible. And if you get to the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, just turn back a few books and you will come to 1 John, chapter 3. Uh, again if you're not familiar with the way a bible works the big numbers are the chapter numbers the little numbers that almost look like footnotes those are the verse numbers so chapter three starting in verse four here in just a second Uh, i want to thank you so much for allowing me the time that i have had away from the pulpit recently i got to tell you it's not my normal practice to uh, preach for two months and then take three weeks off from the pulpit uh, but, uh, in the Lord's providence, it just so happened that in the last four weeks, I've only preached uh, one time. Uh, four weeks ago, we had Austin Ganyo from Ghana, West Africa, bring the word to us. Uh, and then, two weeks ago, Terry Shelley came and preached to us from Burksville. Uh, and then, last week, as I was in a conference in Washington, D.C. on healthy churches, uh, you heard from our youth minister, Adam Shepard. Uh, and one of the things that I want to point out on this is, it's really good when that stuff happens, not because I need to be taking breaks or anything, but because as a congregation, we need to hear the word from multiple voices. You don't just need to hear it from me. I mean, we come to church not for a preacher, but for the word itself. And so as we come together, we are not here to hear a man. We're here to hear God. We want to hear what God has to say. And any faithful preacher, can tell you what God has to say. We want this church to be built on this right here. We want to be coming for Jesus, not for any man that stands up here in this pulpit. And so I think it's a great thing when you hear God's word from other voices other than mine. Now, 1 John, we're back in 1 John now. 1 John is a book all about assurance and warnings. right? John writes in 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you, the whole reason I wrote this book, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know, he wants to give you ways that you can ask yourself, am I genuinely a Christian? And my prayer over this series, throughout this whole series in 1 John, my prayer is that those of us in here who are truly saved, who are truly in Christ, will be assured of our salvation, where Satan is trying to get us to doubt whether or not we are truly saved. Those of us who are will be assured. But my prayer also is that for any of us who might have believed our whole lives that we were saved, when we start looking at the biblical tests, the biblical tests for whether or not we are a christian perhaps there might be some of us who come to the realization that we are not saved and my prayer is that the book of first john this wonderful book that god will use it to reveal those things to each and every heart this morning and as we continue to preach through the book of first john and so let's go to first john chapter 3 as we examine the evidence of new birth the evidence of the new birth first john Chapter 3, I'm going to be reading, starting in verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now I want you to keep your Bibles open to that passage as We're going to be going back to it time and time again. And I'm going to have you look back at certain verses. But three lessons that I want to pull out of this passage for us this morning. Three lessons that I think God wants us to take note of. The first is our sin is rebellion. The second is our actions are evidence. And the third is our hope is Christ. Our sin is rebellion. Our actions are. Our evidence and our hope is Christ. Let's take them in turn. Number one, our sin is rebellion. Look again at verse 4 with me. Verse 4, there he writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, here is what John is saying to us. John is saying your sin is more serious than you think. That's the mood behind this. Your sin is more serious than you think. Sin is a disregarding of God's law. That's what he means when he says lawlessness. Sin is a disregarding of God's law. A turning away from God's law. It is a disrespecting of God. Sin is disrespecting God. It is, in fact, a rebellious assault on God's authority. This is what sin is. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, John, I don't feel like that. I mean, sure, I've sinned, but I've never felt a hatred toward God. I've never felt that when I sin. You've got to hear me this morning. Every time we sin, every time we sin, we are saying in that moment that we want to be our own God. Every time we sin, we are saying, in that moment, we want to be our own God. That we don't want to let God be our master. We want to be our own master. I know God says this is wrong. I know He says this is bad for me. But in this moment, I'm going to go ahead with it because I think the benefits outweigh whatever consequences there might be. I'm trusting my own judgment more than God's. I think I know better than God, even if just for a moment. I think I'm going to go, I'm going to decide for myself what is good and bad for me. I'm in charge. That's what sin is. William Ernest Henley, in his famous poem Invictus, said, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And one of our modern poets said it this way Can't nobody tell me nothing. We have such stellar music today. Anyway, uh, every time we sin, we are looking God in the face and rejecting him as king over us. That's what we're doing. We're looking him in the face and rejecting his kingship. This is what Adam and Eve did in the very first sin. They rejected God deciding for them what is good and bad. And they said, I'm going to decide for myself. What is good and bad? What is good for me? I'm going to go ahead and take this fruit. I know what God said. But in this moment, I'm going to be my own master. And we do this every time we sin. Sin is lawlessness. It is a rebellion against God's law. Paul Washer writes this. He says, We must not be deceived into thinking that apathy toward godliness and neglect of God's law is a lesser crime than outright rebellion. According to 1 John 3, 4, all sin is lawlessness, an act of treachery against God and a declaration of war upon His throne. You see what he's saying there? He's saying there is no difference between a sin of perhaps neglecting God or apathy toward godliness there's no difference between that and outright rebellion, all right? Sin is lawlessness, all sin. He says it's an act of treachery against God and a declaration of war upon God's throne. A declaration of war. We have to see our sin like this. You have to see your sin like this. Otherwise, the gospel will not have its intended effect. The gospel will not have its intended effect in your life until you see the seriousness and the weightiness of your sin as lawlessness, a disregarding of God's law, a rebellion against his authority. In Luke 7, if you remember, in Luke 7, don't turn here, but think about this with me. There is a sinful woman who comes into this Pharisee's house where Jesus is eating, right? And it says a sinful woman. Very likely this woman was a prostitute. And everyone in the place knows it. And the woman comes in and she proceeds to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and to wipe them with her hair. And then she proceeds to anoint his feet with perfume. And in Luke seven forty seven, Jesus, speaking to those at the table, says about this woman, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, leave that up for me, guys, if you don't mind, for just a second. Luke 7:47. The ESV is not my preferred translation on this verse because it makes it sound like, in the first phrase, that she is forgiven because she loved much. Right? But some other translations get this a little better. For instance, listen to what the Christian Standard Bible says on this verse. It says, Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why... She loved much. And that gets at the heart of what the verse is trying to say. What Jesus was communicating to people here is she knows that she has a lot of sin. She knows that it took a lot to forgive her. So she loves Jesus a lot. But those who just think their sin is small will have a small view of what they have been forgiven and a small view of their Savior. You see, if you have a small sin problem in your mind, your view of the Savior will be small. If you have a small sin problem, your view of the Savior will be small. But if you see the depth of your sin, the seriousness of your rebellion against God's law, well, then you see the glory of what Christ did for you on the cross. If you have a big sin problem that Christ had to die for, you have a big view of the Savior. But if you have a small sin problem in your own mind, you will have a small view of the Savior. Let me ask you this. Do you find that you rarely want to share the gospel with others? Be honest with yourself. Do you find that you rarely ever want to share the gospel with others? Might it be because you don't think it took that much for God to save you? Think about it. If it took everything for God to save you, if you understand the depths out of which God brought you, you are going to want to tell other people about that. But if it didn't take much for God to save you, might that be the reason you don't really feel the need to share the gospel with anyone? And so we have to see the weightiness of our sin. Our sin is rebellion against God. That's what lawlessness means here. Our sin is rebellion. Now, with that as the foundation, John moves on and tells us our actions are evidence of who we really are, all right? Point number two, our actions are evidence, evidence of who we really are. Look back with me at verses seven and eight in our text this morning. Verse seven says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John is saying what you practice reveals who you are. What you do reveals who you are. The person who has been saved by Christ, who has a heart that has been changed by God, their life will be characterized by holiness and love. The person who has been truly saved, the person whose heart has been truly transformed by Christ, their life will be characterized by holiness and by love. But on the flip side, the person who is not truly saved, but wants everyone to think they are, well, their actions over time will give them away. That's what John is saying here. Their actions over time will give them away. In the end, God will be able to point at their actions and show them evidence that they were not truly saved. You see that word or that root word down there in verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. In the end, God will be able to point at our body of evidence, our body of work, and show everyone, look, it's clear that person was saved. Look, it's clear that person wasn't saved. Look at their actions. Our actions are evidence. In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about this. He says, a tree is known by its fruit. Remember that? Remember that? In the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end, a tree is known by its fruit. In Matthew 7:18, he said, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And he's not talking about trees here. He's talking about people. Right? Later in that same chapter, verse 21, Jesus says, There will be many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now think about this for a second. Think about this. There will be people who stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, sincerely believing that they are going to heaven. And all of a sudden, they will hear that they are not, and that it is too late, and there is no second chance. And perhaps the worst disservice that we could do for people in the pews every Sunday is to give those who are not saved a false sense of assurance that they are. That is perhaps the worst disservice that we could do, to give those who are not saved a false assurance that they are. Why is that so horribly bad? Because we are letting that person sit comfortably all the while in the end that could be them. Standing before Christ, realizing, you mean I'm I'm not saved? I'm I'm not going to heaven? I'm, I'm going to spend eternity in hell? Think of the shock. Think of the horror. We don't want that for people, which is why we're going through 1 John, this beautiful book that gives us biblical tests and evidences. When you look at your life and you're trying to decide whether or not you are truly saved, do not go with whatever you think. Do not go with whatever you feel. Do not go with whatever is popular. Go with what's in here. You need a biblical test to tell you. You need God to tell you, how do I test myself to see whether or not I am saved? Look at your actions over time. You cannot separate who you are from what you do. That's what John is saying. You cannot separate who you are from what you do. He says, do not be deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you. There's going to be people who say... No, I, I, I am like this. And then you look at their actions, and it reveals they're not. Don't be deceived. Now, in my own life, over time, the Lord has had to do a lot of work, and I mean a lot of work, to help me overcome pride and an argumentative spirit. This came very natural to me as I was growing up. And the Lord has had to do a lot of work in me. And I'm not there yet, but I used to be so bad at this. And anytime anyone would call me out on it, I would defend myself and I would say, I'm not like that. But my actions told a different story. And every time I would defend myself like that and say, I'm not like that, all those people around who were listening had to just be laughing on the inside saying, he doesn't even see it, does he? He doesn't even see it. Of course he's like that. He always does. our actions reveal who we are now look at verse 9 again with me verse 9 there's an important point that we need to make when we're in this passage verse 9 says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God now this does not teach perfection after you become a Christian right There are some people who will come to this passage and then will just be devastated because they read this and they think, I've sinned. I I still sin. I still mess up. I must not be saved. This is not teaching a sinless perfection after you come to Christ. Even in the very same book, John, in the first chapter, if you remember, says, if anyone claims to be without sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're a liar. You're making God out to be a liar. Right? Everybody has sin. He says in chapter 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. Okay? And so even John, in this own book, you can tell, he does not think people become Christians and then they're perfect after that. That's not what he is arguing. And so don't take this passage home and then despair because you have committed sins since you were saved. This happens to everyone. But what it does say is that we're looking at a pattern over time. A pattern discerned over time. It's a body of evidence that piles up to one conclusion or another. A body of evidence. right? And so you need to know, believer, that you will never be fully free of this war on sin until we get to heaven. You'll never be fully free of this. John is saying this. The truly saved cannot make peace with a pattern of sin. Right? That's what I want you to walk away with. The truly saved cannot make peace with a pattern of sin. They are at war. Your actions are evidence of whether or not you have been born again. Now, you might have spent your entire life believing that you are saved. But if your life does not reflect the character of God, you have reason to be concerned. If your life does not reflect the character of God, you have reason to be concerned. I'm not talking about being a good person. Any non-Christian can be nice to others and attend church and pray before meals. Any non-Christian can do that. I'm talking about a life characterized by taking up your cross and following Jesus. A life characterized by love for God and his glory, love for him, a life characterized by sacrificing your own needs and wants for the good of others, a life characterized by progressive holiness and a hatred towards sin, an increasing, as you go along, increasing distaste for the things of the world. If you look at your life this morning and you have... Believed for the longest time that you are saved, and you're starting to come to the realization perhaps I'm not, perhaps my actions reveal I'm not saved. Please talk to someone, talk to someone after the service, talk to me, talk to someone you came with, talk to one of our elders, talk to anybody, but do something about that. But on the flip side, Satan might be trying to get you to doubt your salvation because of one sin. Satan might be at you every day trying to get you to believe you are not a Christian because of one sin. And John is saying you can have assurance if your life is characterized. The body of evidence in your life, it's characterized by righteousness. That's evidence of saving faith, evidence that you genuinely have been born again. And so ask yourself this morning, what do my actions over time reveal about me? Now, finally, third lesson, our hope is Christ. Our hope is Christ. Look at verses 5 and then verse 8 with me. In verse 5, it says, You know that He appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sin. And then go back down to verse 8. At the very end, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, there are two problems that every human being has because of sin. Two problems. Every single human being has these problems. The first problem is your guilt before God. Sin makes us guilty before God. It creates a guilt in us. We are guilty of condemnation. Sin creates a separation between us and God. And if that separation is not taken care of, it will last for all eternity. But Jesus, Jesus came to take away sins, verse 5 says. He came to take away sins. He came to take away that separation. He kept, came to take away your guilt before God by being guilty himself. Being treated as guilty by God the Father on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? Because God was treating him as if he was guilty of the sins of the whole world. And God was pouring out his wrath on his son to open up salvation to anyone who would come to Christ. And so Jesus came to take away your sin, to take away your guilt. But that's just the first problem, right? That's just the first problem. So if, if you're here this morning and you're sitting there saying, Well, John, after that first section, I'm thinking, my sin is worse than I ever thought. What hope is there for me? Christ is your hope. Christ is your hope. But the second problem is this. You are not only guilty before God, but you are a slave to sin's power without Christ. Without Christ, we are a slave to sin's power. Before Christ, we have no power to overcome sin. We are a slave to it. Now, sure, you might, through strength of will, rid yourself of some bad habits. But anyone who is not a Christian, who shows progress in what seems like holiness, all they are doing is replacing one idol for another. Many times it's a more respectable idol replacing a less respectable one. But it is not overcoming sin. The only way we can have the power to overcome sin is if we let the Holy Spirit come inside of us right the holy spirit must come inside of us look back at verse 9 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning why because god's seed abides in him that is the holy spirit of god that he gives to live inside of every person who puts on christ in faith and repentance and baptism And when that happens, you have a power that the world knows nothing about. You have a power to overcome sin. It does not happen all at once. You are progressively becoming more and more holy as you go along in this life. It is often three steps forward and two steps back. But over time, you will overcome the sins in your life. One by one, you will put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, Romans 8.13. But the only way to do it Is by the Spirit. And so I had an old seminary professor who used to call this the double trouble of every person. Double trouble. There's two problems that sin gives us it's our guilt before God, but not only our guilt before God, the fact that we're a slave to sin's power. That's our double trouble, but Christ is the double cure. The double cure. You remember Rock of Ages, that beautiful song? There's a line in Rock of Ages that speaks exactly to this. It says, be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Rock of Ages. The only thing that can save us is the Rock of Ages. Christ is our hope. Go to Christ. Trust in Christ. Christ is the only one who can deliver you. Christ is the only one who can make you not guilty before God. Christ is the only one who can give you the power to overcome sin, and He is the only one who can change your status so that when you get before the judgment seat of Christ one day, you will be let into heaven and you will not hear those awful words. Let's pray. Oh Lord, Please, we beg of you, put this truth deep in our hearts. Reveal to us our status before you. Reveal to us where we stand with you. Do we stand condemned apart from Christ based upon our actions over time? Because our actions reveal whether or not we are truly saved. Do we stand apart from you, or do we stand with you in Christ, only because of Christ? Reveal our hearts to us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.